as Armand said, I think it would be uh, true to say that uh, you can go through stages of life where it feels like everyone is telling you how you should live. You know, how you should live, um, what you should do, or more accurately, what you shouldn't do. Okay, not just when you're a teenager. Okay, when you get to my age, it can feel like almost every article you are reading is telling you all the fun things you shouldn't be doing if you want to live longer, and all the less fun things you should be doing if you don't want to get Alzheimer's. Okay, but there are also times, if we don't like it when people are telling us what to do, there are also times, maybe when you're feeling a bit lost, maybe when you're feeling a bit overwhelmed, when you wish someone would tell you what to do with your life and give you some advice. Well, in today's passage, Peter does both. Okay, first he tells us what we shouldn't do, then he tells us what we should do, but he also tells us why. And he does that for a reason. Okay, when I was at secondary school, I used to play a lot of chess. Okay, I'm interesting like that. And I don't know if they still do this, but when you play in chess competitions, you play with a clock. And this clock has two faces on it. And you make your move, and then you immediately hit the clock, the button on the clock, and it starts the other player's clock. And from that moment on, his or her time is ticking down. And for Peter and for the other apostles, the death and the resurrection of Christ changed everything. Because when Christ rose from the dead, it was like him making the move in history, the move that started the clock of history, counting down to the end of history. And Peter is saying, when you understand that, when you get that, it fundamentally changes what you do, what you don't do, and why you do it. Okay, first point then, what not to do. Okay, how not to live. Okay, look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Okay, how would you group those things together? I think broadly you can group them into two groups. Okay, sensuality, passions, orgies, what's that? Okay, that's sex, isn't it? Drunkenness, drinking parties, what's that? Okay, that's alcohol or drugs. Okay, the two things that are lurking behind almost every scandal in public life. If you were to add money to the list, the list would be pretty much complete, wouldn't it? Okay, but not just lurking behind scandals, but lurking behind a whole load of our relational or personal problems. And if we are honest, many of us carry the scars or the open wounds from when one or more of those things have come to dominate our lives or the lives of those whom we love. And if you know the Bible, you know that the Bible has this vision for how you and I are to thrive in life and how to flourish. And Peter is saying, yes, and a diet of alcohol and sex or money does not help you achieve that vision. It doesn't help you survive, let alone thrive. 
Except if you notice, he doesn't actually mention money, does he? He finishes the list with lawless idolatry. Now, if you've visited any of the great Greek or Roman ruins, you will know that their temples, their temples must have been incredibly beautiful. And so compared with drunkenness and orgies, the image of respectable Roman citizens burning incense to beautifully ornately carved statues of their gods in architecturally magnificent temples hardly seems so bad, does it? I mean, in comparison to orgies and drunkenness, it seems all very respectable. But that's because the stuff that can eat away at our lives and slowly erode our characters can, on the outside, seem very respectable. You just think how the Ten Commandments begin. I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. Now, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he argued that you don't break any of the subsequent commandments without first breaking that commandment. You don't break the commandment to put down your work and rest on the Sabbath. You don't break the commandment not to lie. You don't break the commandment not to endlessly want more money and more stuff, covetousness. You don't break the commandment not to commit adultery without first breaking the commandment not to commit idolatry. Because we look to our work or the opinion of others, or to possessions, or to sexual intimacy, to give us what only God can give us. We're looking to them as idols. And so whether you are worshipping an actual stone idol in a beautiful marble temple, or sacrificing your family on the altar of your work, or putting too much weight on your reputation, on your status in life, however respectable it might seem, idolatry is the gateway sin to all sin. Now maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian and you hear something like that and you think, yeah, there goes the problem with religion, always telling us what not to do and mostly all the fun things we are not to do. And the problem with religion is religion is moralistic Religion is judgmental. As the American journalist H.L. Mencken said of Puritanism, religion has the haunting fear that someone somewhere is having a good time. Okay, that's the problem with religion. Okay, I want you to think, because if you think about it, our current secular culture and expressive individualism also has its moral code, doesn't it? It also tells you the things you mustn't do or the things you mustn't say. Things that if you do them or say them will result in you being rapidly and publicly condemned and shunned and shamed. Which is exactly what Peter's friends are experiencing. Verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, as, um, as well as playing chess, I used to play rugby. Okay, great combination, chess and rugby. 
And my friends and I, we used to get up to all the stuff that the rugby crowd would get up to until I became a Christian. Again, I didn't want to do it anymore. And in the weeks that followed, one of my friends said to me, Martin, you have become so pious. Okay, he did not mean that as a compliment. Okay? And Peter is saying to them and to us, don't be surprised by that. Don't be surprised when people criticize you or malign you. Because it is not just Christianity that has got a view on what you shouldn't be doing. The question is, whose version of that list are you going to listen to? Because there are differences. Firstly, Christianity differs from secular culture in what you shouldn't do. You see, expressive individualism thinks, I should be free to do whatever I want to do. I should be free to be whoever I want to be and to express that. And what is sinful, what's on the list of things you shouldn't do is anyone or anything that stops me doing that and being who I want to be. Whereas Peter, Christianity, is taking aim at the stuff that ends up controlling and dominating you. The stuff that stops you thriving and the idols that lie behind that. Because he knows, because Christianity knows that to really thrive, everyone needs boundaries. Everyone needs boundaries. And Peter knows that total freedom is ultimately enslaving. So it's different in what not to do. Secondly, Christianity is different in its diagnosis of where the problem lies. You see, right back to Plato, secularism believes, hey, you are fundamentally good. The problem is outside you. Okay, what stops you thriving is ultimately outside of you. Christianity is much more realistic than that. Because while it recognizes the power of external influences to shape us, it also recognizes, hey, let's be honest, we're part of the problem. The problem lies inside us. That verse 2, it's our human passions, literally our over-desires, our wanting some things too much, like comfort or intimacy or reputation, or are looking to fulfill those desires in the wrong places that makes those things destructive. Okay, it's different in what we shouldn't do, it's different in where it sees the problem. But thirdly, Christianity is different because of why you should stop doing things. Verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Who arms themselves? Who takes up arms? People who feel threatened people who know that a battle is coming, both of which were true for Peter's friends. Okay, they are facing growing hostility for their Christian faith. But Peter is not telling them to take up physical arms. He's not even telling them to man the cultural barricades. And he's not telling them to retreat to a cultural bomb shelter. He's calling them to adopt a certain way of thinking, to think about life 
and suffering and hostility the way Christ did. How did Christ think? You see, Jesus knew that when he suffered, he was suffering for our sins in our place. And secular culture and other religions will say, stop doing this, other religions, stop doing that, secular culture, and you will be accepted. You can earn our secular culture or God's approval if you stop doing things. Christianity says you can and you should stop doing these other things because you already have God's approval. Because Christ has suffered for you already. And you can be free of the power of this stuff that slowly eats away at your life because Christ has suffered for you. And sin's power over you has been broken and you don't need to live any longer under its guilt or its shame. You already have God's approval, so you can stop doing things. But what about the approval you don't have? What about the approval of other people? What about the approval of those who malign you? Because you don't have their approval. Well, Jesus knew that if he was going to be obedient to the Father's will, he would suffer. And he embraced that. And so to think about suffering the way Christ did means, hey, we've decided whose side we are standing on. Verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Okay, so to have Christ's mind on suffering and hostility is to say, I'm done with that stuff. I'm done with sin, I'm done with living that way, and if I take some abuse from that from others, that's okay, because look at the abuse Christ took for me. A friend of mine is a pastor, and this past week, one of his church members called him a homophobe to his face. Okay, he's not. You know, I know him, he's not. He is just trying to lovingly and graciously teach the Bible. So when he texted me and told me, I sent him back the prayer of George Whitfield, that great 18th century preacher. And Whitfield prayed, God, give me a deep humility, a well-guided zeal, a burning love, and a single eye and then let man or devils do their worst. But sometimes when man and devils are doing their worst, when you are being maligned, the temptation can be to do your worst in response, can't it? To, ma- to malign back. But not if you arm yourself with the same way of thinking as Christ. Because how did he respond? He prayed for those who were crucifying, and he forgave them. But also, Peter says, verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God is going to have the last word. And when you know that, when you really believe that, when deep down you are confident of the truth of that, that he's going to have the last word, you don't need to have the last word every time which can break the cycle of insults. But you also don't need to compromise 
to stay in their good books. Because you know that God is going to have the last word. So so any praise they might offer you for coming over to their side is going to be short-lived in the light of eternity. That's why Peter says what he says in verse 6. Because these guys are experiencing a particular form of criticism. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What's he talking about? Well, we know from um, Peter's second letter that uh, they were being mocked for the fact that Jesus had not yet returned. So they're preaching Jesus is coming back and Jesus hadn't yet come back. And some of them had even died before Jesus had come back. So what good has Christianity done them? I mean, so much for your death-defeating saviour. You're having to bury your members. And Peter's telling them, regardless of what your neighbours are saying about your dead brothers and sisters, regardless of how they are judging them or you, they are alive with God. So don't let their hostile comments get to you. Okay, that is how not to live. That's a negative. Okay, what about the positive? Second point then, what to do. Okay, what not to do, what to do. Look again at verse 2. We're to live, Peter says, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Okay, when you hear that phrase, what do you think? Yeah, the, the will of God. What, 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 does, that, what does that mean to you? Because I think typically, maybe, maybe this is true for the younger ones amongst us. Typically we think of, okay, what's God's will for my life? Should I pursue that career? Should I take that job or this job? Should I marry this person or that person? Okay, not that most of us got a choice in that matter. Okay, but what, whatever it is, what is God's will for my life? Okay, that is not how Peter's thinking. You know, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul wrote, this is the will of God. And we all go, yeah, come on, Paul, tell me, what, what is it that I should be doing with my life? You know, what is God's will for my life? Your sanctification, your growth in personal holiness. But you do have a choice, Peter says, and it's binary. You can live like everyone else wants to live or live the way God wants you to live. What the Gentiles, the pagans want to do, verse 3, or what God wants you to do. Be controlled by your over-desires or let God's desires shape you. That's the choice. Okay, but notice how he begins, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, therefore. And the res- like we were looking at in class this morning, okay, the resurrection and the ascension of Christ has started the clock. And ever since, we have been in the end game. Ever since, we have been in the last phase of God's redemptive plan. And knowing that, Peter says, is going to profoundly change the way you live. Except notice what he doesn't say. Because he doesn't say, the end is at hand, so stockpile a load of canned goods. You retreat to your shelter. And he doesn't say the end of all things is at hand. So develop the timelines. You know, let's work out the date of Jesus' coming. And he doesn't say, you know, the end of all things is at hand, so let's get anxious about the state of the world. 
Yeah, last week I said uh, Sue and I had been at the uh, graduation ceremony for the final year medical students at UNIL and how each one of them had been asked to provide a photo of where they saw themselves in the next 10 years, in 10 years time. Okay, no exaggeration, okay, it might be a bit of an exaggeration, but no, no exaggeration, I think between a third and a half showed a picture referencing some version of climate change like them trying to ski on grass because there's not going to be any snow or standing knee deep in water because all the glaciers are melting okay and i'm not mocking that okay all of those are real genuine concerns though i have to say it was slightly ironic that the other half showed photos of themselves in various glamorous locations around the world no doubt having flown to them okay but in talking about the end Peter's not interested in stoking your anxiety. He's not interested in provoking you to worry. Instead, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So, rather than let your desires control you, be self-controlled. Rather than get drunk on alcohol or sex, be sober-minded and do it for the sake of your prayers. Don't you think that's interesting? I think that's interesting because we're a sort of an intellectual bunch, aren't we? And they are facing hostility for their Christian faith. And the clock of history is ticking down. So we might have thought that the reason for being clear-headed is to think hard and to come up with some great apologetic arguments to persuade our non-Christian friends and neighbours to turn to the Christian faith. I mean, after all, Peter's already said that we should be ready to give an account of the hope that is in us. And yet here, the outflow of knowing that Christ has dealt with your sin and that he is risen from the dead and that the end of all things is at hand. The outflow of knowing all that is a clear-headedness that prays. Sexual immorality and alcohol and looking to things as idols, they don't do that, do they? Because they cloud our thinking and they dull our hearts to eternal realities. And so instead of praying, prayer becomes hard or non-existent. And Peter is saying, yeah, but guys, God's will for your life is so much better than that. And it might be a daily battle. But as you think clearly and deeply about Christ's love for you, that he was willing to go to the cross for you. And as you think soberly, about his return, that can light the fuse paper of prayer in your life. Okay, but prayer for what? Because he doesn't tell us, does he? I don't think it's hard to guess. Because when you or your friends are being maligned for your Christian faith, you're gonna find yourself praying for endurance, like I'm praying for my pastor friend. And because sin can have this clouding, dulling effect on our hearts, 
We're going to be praying that God would fan the flames of love for him rather than love for sin. And we're going to be praying for those who are doing the maligning, because that's what Jesus did. So, what is God's will for your life? Clear-minded prayer. Secondly, the end of all things is at hand, so verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Does covering a multitude of sins mean sweeping them under the carpet? You know, pretending they haven't happened? All that sin, all that hurt that's been done against you, just sweep it under the carpet? Or becoming a carpet for the person who has hurt you to walk on? And the answer is no. Okay, Proverbs 10 verse 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offences. So love is the opposite of hatred. What's the opposite of covering offences? You know, it's Hebrew parallelism, isn't it? Okay, so if love is the opposite of hatred, what is the opposite of covering offences? It is stirring up strife. Think how that works. Someone says something or does something and it hurts. How are you going to respond to that? Because your passions, your pride, our woundedness says, strike back, get even. But the will of God says, don't stir up strife. Instead, cover with love. Which is not pretending that it didn't happen. It happened so much that the Son of God had to die for it. And either the person involved will acknowledge that for themselves and repent of their sins and trust that Christ died for their sins. Or they don't, and Peter says, as he said already, then they will die for it. And they will be judged eternally for it. One way or another, justice has or will be done. When you know that, it frees you. It frees you from being eaten up by the corrosive acid of bitterness, vengeance, or strife. And Peter says, we are to love one another earnestly. Okay, by which he doesn't mean love one another with lots of emotion, because that would rule out all the Englishmen. Okay? He means don't stop doing it because there are going to be loads of reasons for us to stop doing it because to cover with love when we are hurting can be hard but what's the alternative the alternative is a downward spiral of strife which is worse thirdly the end of all things is at hand so verse 9 show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why pick that as a virtue to cultivate in your life with the end at hand? Because it is the opposite of alcohol, the, the alcohol-fueled orgies of their day or the alcohol-fueled hookup culture of our day, both of which just use people. 
but also to meet as churches. These guys would have needed each other to open up their homes. And that would have meant, you know, slaves and freemen, men and women, mixing across the social divides in your home. <coughs> Excuse me. And Peter is saying, open up your homes to that. Open up your homes to the fellowship of God's people by opening up your heart to that. Because when you face growing hostility on the outside, or someone is struggling with sins on the inside, everyone needs to know that there is a place for them on the inside, the inside of God's church. Fourthly, the end of all things is at hand. So verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, to be a steward is to be a manager of someone else's property. And what is that property you're to steward? Because it's God's property, isn't it? And it is the gifts and the skills and the resources that he has given to you. And Peter divides them into two groups. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So speaking and serving. Which of those two groups do your gifts fall in? Or maybe you have gift in, in both groups. Whichever, Peter reminds us, they are God's gifts given to you to steward. And they might be speaking gifts, like teaching kids in Sunday school, or youth in youth group, or with family and friends around the dinner table. Whatever it is, you recognize that, or other people recognize that you are good with words. How are you gonna use those words? Peter says, be conscious of your words. You, you are gifted. You are gifted to speak the words of God, the oracles of God, words on God's behalf. You know, I've said this before, so I'm sorry for being boring, but, you know, I am better with, you know, I just recognize I'm better with words than Sue is and probably better with words than my girls are. Though my girls are pretty feisty, aren't you, Lily? Okay, but how, so if that's the case, how am I, if that's true for you, mum or dad, friend of friends, if, if you are better with words than the people around you, how are you gonna use those words? Because you, if you're better with words, you could, use, you could use that gift, that skill, just to win the argument every time, couldn't you? Just to trample over people. It's all very respectable, Okay, but that's what we're doing. Or, in the light of the end of all things, am I going to use my words, God's words, in a way to serve them and build them up? Or maybe God has gifted you practically. Okay? Put your hands up if you've got two hands. Okay, two feet. Yeah. So come and join the setup team. Okay, and because you've got a great, I mean, if anyone has a great eye for a nicely placed chair, okay, come and join the setup team. Or, or maybe you are great at cooking. So have people round. Strengthen the church, literally, physically. Maybe you're good socially. You know, you're a bit of an extrovert. That's how God's gifted you. So join the welcome team. Make sure people get that welcome 
into God's household. Or maybe you could socially, so invite people out. Whatever it is, Peter says, serve in God's strength. Why say that? Because, I mean, the problem with practical tasks is that we can tend to think, you know, I don't need to, I just should just get on and do it. You know, we, I don't need to get spiritual about this. You know, hey, there's a job that needs doing, someone needs to do it, so I'll do it. Or let's just, you know, practical task, let's just get this over and done with. You know, somebody needs to serve coffee, I'll serve coffee. And Peter says, no, as you serve, be conscious of God, be praying. God, equip me and empower me as I do this. Serve in God's strength. Why? Because Peter doesn't just tell us what not to do or what to do. He tells us why we should do it. Last point, very briefly, why to do it. What not to do, what to do, why to do it. Okay, so we are done with sin. We're going to be clear-headed and we're going to pray. We're going to love one another. And we're going to show hospitality. And we're going to speak our words as God's words. And we are going to serve in his strength, verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so notice how the list of stuff you shouldn't do ends with idolatry. But the list of stuff we should do ends with God and his glory. Why? Because knowing that Christ has died for our sins, that he is risen and ascended and reigning and one day is going to return, doesn't just change what we do, but why we do it. You see, you could take your gifts, your skills, and deploy them in the service of yourself. Because you want a bit of attention for yourself. You want the spotlight to turn on you for a moment. And then we are serving the idol of self, or of our reputation, or of our significance. And Peter is saying, no, when you humbly look to God for his strength, when you're conscious of speaking his words, and when you're praying and lovingly seeking to cover other people's sins, and when you're being hospitable and welcoming and doing it without grumbling, you are on the path to living for God's glory and not your own. And that is a much better path to be on. It's a much healthier path for you to be on, and it is a much better path for everyone else if you are on that because instead of using them hey now we're beginning to genuinely serve them each morning I use the um, the Lord's Prayer as the basis of my praying I just take one line a day I work my way through it uh, every day one line a day and that means that every Sunday morning as I get up to pray I'm back at the beginning our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's my prayer for Sunday morning. And typically what I'll do is I'll work my way through what we get up to here together in our time together. Father, this morning may your name be hallowed. God, may you be glorified in the practical tasks of setup, 
Father, may you be glorified in class at 9 a.m. May you be glorified as the band practice. May you be glorified in the welcome that people receive at the door. May, may you be glorified through Armand as he leads the service. Father, may you be glorified through Karen as she reads the Bible to us. May, may you be glorified through Karen as she prays for us and leads us before the throne of your grace. Father, may you be glorified as I preach your word. God, whatever else happens this morning, God, will you be glorified? This week, I want to encourage you to do the same, not just for Sunday morning, but from Monday through Saturday morning, and afternoon and evening, in all of your speaking and in all of your serving, be praying, Father, may you be glorified. And this week, take some time to consider, are there any areas where you are not glorifying God, where, where you are not hallowing his name, living for his glory? Are there any sins or idols that you need to be done with? Is there someone that I need to forgive and ask God's help to cover their sin? Or maybe ask yourself, this week, who can I show hospitality to? Because it can be hostile out there for some people. So I want to welcome them, I want to give them a home. So who can you show hospitality to? Maybe, maybe meet someone for lunch and encourage and befriend them. And whatever the Lord lays on your heart, remember you can do it, not because you have to earn his favor, but because of Christ, you already have his favor. So spread that favor around. It's a church, Christ died for your sins. He is risen and he is reigning. And one day he will come again. Let that change the what and the why of our lives. Let's pray.